Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line, we have, um, for the presenters, we have myself, Jacob. And me, Zane. So we are going to be your hosts um, for this week's program. But before I go on to um, the crust of the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We like to pay our, our respect um, to elders, any elders, elders past and present, and acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that FreeCR and Green Left Radio um, supports um, the fight back for Indigenous sovereignty. Now, the first kind of, um, we have a good, a pretty good program kind of lined up. Um, so we're going to be playing a pre-recorded interview that um, someone from our team on Green Left um, produced on the kind of Greenland's um, elections, which saw a recent sort of left-wing um, so, um, Democratic Socialist Party um, sweep the majority election. So we're going to be having playing a pre-recorded interview um, about that. And then the, and then we're going to be doing an interview that Zane lined up on AGL. Um, and Zane can probably talk a bit more about that later. Yeah. The, uh, AGL has set aside a insufficient amount of money for the rehab of its three coal fired power stations and its Sydney coal seam gas field. So that raises concerns that as the profits of coal dry up, they're just going to cut and run. So we'll be taking, speaking to Bronya Lipsky from Environmental Justice Australia about that. And um, and finally, the last interview for the program will be playing an interview. Um, we'll be not playing. We'll be um, doing an interview with Peter Boyle uh, um, around um, the campaign um, to free Abdul Ochilon, who is the imprisoned PKK Kurdish um, liberation leader. Who so there's been a, on there. Um, there's going to be actually a webinar at six thirty or six. Yep, yeah, six thirty tonight about that whole campaign. And so this interview will be kind of opportunity to kind of talk a bit about the background um, to that upcoming meeting that's coming up. Okay, so the first kind of news story I just want to have a bit of a discussion about is there's there's actually been quite a um, a number of refreshing kind of developments in relation to gig economy workers. Now there's been a recent kind of announcement that um, one of the one of the man one of the the food delivery companies or I don't know how to, I, I, I keep forgetting delivery. I don't want to con it. Food delivery doesn't actually encompass completely what these companies are. Uh, sometimes you, I think they're highly to, alienated exploitation rackets involving food delivery. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the more refreshing kind of news um, that has um, popped up is one of the companies, Menulog, has um, committed to starting a trial where they'll be now classifying 
the um, classifying the riders or the delivery drivers as actual workers because the background to this is under the the model of um, Uber and Deliveroo and all those sort of de- um, delivery kind of app- apps is they they essentially um, classify you as almost like a self-employed sort of business men mm, and like private, so that private contractor private contractors and so that essentially creates a context where basically um the the employer doesn't have to provide anything all the um all the employer is providing is the platform for you to do work um and of course when you're working for companies like um uber or delivery you basically get pittance for um, for each delivery that you um, that you do, and the main kind of benefit that these that the likes of Uber and Deliveroo like to tout is that you're a flexible worker. You can pick your own shifts, etc. So interestingly enough, there has been a whole federal select committee on job security looking into how rife insecure work is across the country. Um, and of course, and t- was taking, and this has been taking submissions from insecure workers in New South Wales. And now, Jim McElroy and Makella um, Pangrees um, reported on this for Green Left, and they report that um, this this whole um, federal select committee was set up last year after five food delivery drivers were killed at work, and expected to report by November. Now, the committee has already received over 77 submissions um, from diverse groups, including the Transport Workers Union, Trades Hall Council, lawyers, advocacy groups, nursing and hospitality unions, the Australian Medical Association, University Casual Academics, etc. And, of course, the diversity of all these kind of submissions, as McKellar and Jim note, is kind of re- is revealing of how widespread um, casual, fixed-term and precarious work is. And interestingly enough, the big corporations, Menulog, Uber, Uber Eats, Ola, <laughs> Deliveroo also made submissions. Um, and of course, the, the, some of the examples of the submissions was from the pro kind of um, union labour side is that the TWU, um, Transport Workers Union, said that the government needed to regulate the gig economy and that, you know, workers in the industry face economic hardship at the whim of an act, um, uh, app notification. And the secretary um, said each day workers are stripped of their livelihoods at the whim of an app notification with no redress. Those who are not subjected to dangerous um, toll with the despair of mainly trying to subside on less than half the national minimum wage. And that, of course, only if the substance is not ended abruptly by death or serious injury wrought by these dangerous work pressures. And, um, you know... Basically, he added that the federal government regulates the industry or the gig, uh, gig workers could have basic working rights. Menulog, um, Deliveroo and Uber Business Model Act promotes a withering away of workers' rights and wages. Hmm. And the Senate committee learned that um, that Uber pays its workers just um, $21 now. This is lower than middle age. And... Um, and Uber and Menu Log and Deliveroo, in terms of this response to this, they rejected the idea that workers are super exploited, um, claiming that workers like the flexibility um, they offer. And so Deliveroo and 
Uber Eats rejected calls for their drivers to be classified as employees, claiming that minimum conditions and pay rights rates for riders would be undercut would undercut flexibility by forcing fixed shifts. This is despite the fact, and of course, one of the recent sort of developments that has kind of expired um, some of this discussion has been the fact that in Britain. Um, Uber has now has made a decision that it will classify tens of thousands of wor- workers at, um, drivers as workers. Now that is following uh, a British court ruling, so Uber didn't um, make that decision out of the goodness of their heart. They simply had to respond to a legislative sort of court ruling. Well, it was either that or go out of stop trading. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, but basically, the only corporation that sort of conceded was Menulog, and now Menulog has now committed that it will be starting a trial program. Um, so yeah, that's um, you can read kind of more about that on um, Green Left. On but that's sort of the crust of um, the Senate committee hearing, and the only, the main kind of outcome has been the fact that in response, um, Menulog has now said that they will trial a program where. Um, employers, um, their employees will get a awards wage, good um, reasonable conditions, and they'll be classified as workers. But I think one of the things to kind of note about this is we shouldn't really be depending, we, um, we can't actually depend on just the corporations making the decision out of the goodness of their heart. And really, in terms of um, around these issues, really, the, go- the federal government actually needs to step in um, to regulate this industry, as the Transport Workers Union has outlined, because mm. really, without any sort of federal regulation, um, it's just corporations just free to do what they want, and of course, they will do, they'll make the decision that turns them the most profit, and at this stage, that model of um, classifying workers as independent contractors is actually what is um, giving the likes of um, Deliveroo and Uber Eats massive amounts of profits. Mm. And for what? Making a piece of software that sets it all up automatically. It's not like Uber Eats and Menulog have to employ huge amounts of staff to administer this stuff. Mm. The whole point of it is it's an app. So... On what basis do Uber and Menulog think that they deserve to get big profits? This thing should be a service which, you know, 98% of the money raised goes back to the drivers because they're the ones doing the work. You recover your money for making the app by charging a tiny little tariff, but it's not like that. Menulog and Uber charge massive, you know, they get a... Do you know what the cut is that they get? Uh, the cut for what Uber Eats drives? Yeah, like if you pay, I don't know, 15 bucks to get some food delivered to your house or something, how much of that's going to the driver and how much is going to Uber? I think it's like, um, I'm pretty sure it... Okay, because you can't really... If you're paying 50 bucks for, for food, you get um, like a 10... You have to pay a 10 to 11 to 8 to $10 delivery fee. From my understanding... Drivers only sort of get, might get like seven, six or seven dollars off a delivery, um, or maybe even less. Um, because I remember hearing from someone who worked in delivery, he had to work like, get like, do like five to eight deliveries to get at least fifty to seventy dollars. And of course, that was sort of considered decent money because it was extra income on top of his job, on top of his other job. And, you know, 
work getting two to three hours worth of deliveries gets you up to fifty to seventy dollars, mm. um, or fifty dollars. So, so indicatively, if the driver is getting seven or eight bucks out of ten dollars, then Uber is getting twenty or thirty percent of the yeah of the money. That's insane. What a massive profit for the you know. In, in return for having paid some software developers to build an app. Yeah, exactly. It's um, But it's just that it represents kind of the stage of neoliberal capitalism that we're in where everything, you know, so drawing on the kind of success of Facebook and Twitter, um, the idea of setting up platforms, um, Uber and the likes of Uber and um, Deliveroo have sort of come in and said, what if we set a platform up for X. And now I notice there's all sorts of platforms now. There's now a platform for organize, getting um, getting deliveries from the shops, uh, i.e. Um, buying stuff from Bunnings. There's mm. now there's now application for delivery deliverers of that. And then of course there is also I know of another application called Airtasker, which basically sorts out. Oh God, that's general, disgusting. General kind of jobs, etc. I'm I'm a sole trader. I'm a carpenter, and I've looked at Airtasker and the amount of jobs on there where it's like, build me a garage for five hundred bucks, and people will bid on it. They'll be like, yeah, okay. I'll have a go. It's, it's like super race to the bottom, dirty deeds done dirt cheap for little construction tasks and stuff. But yeah, like the thing about these apps is if you want to break it down into work, so instead of drivers getting paid per delivery, they get paid the minimum wage, 25 bucks an hour or thereabouts, plus whatever little penalties and, you know, driver, um, you know, use of vehicle allowance. So that gets broken up into minimum three-hour blocks, and then the app can look at all the people ordering food, all the revenue that's coming in, and then the app can trigger, or right, here you go, have a three-hour block of guaranteed minimum wage. And they're going to be making enough profit to be able to support that. So there's no need for people to be getting paid these disgustingly low little piecemeal rates. If you can make an app that that doles out jobs per delivery, you can make an app that doles out jobs at 25 bucks an hour for a minimum three-hour shift. You've just got to tweak the app. There's enough money going into those things mm. to be able to pay people the minimum wage. Mm. Yeah, well said, um, Zane. Anyway, we might just conclude this discussion. We'll probably discuss this a bit more um, on a future program because I think there's quite a lot to discuss around this issue. Um, so I'll just go play a quick announcement and I'll move on to the next part of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. FreeCR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. 
And now I'm just going to go be playing um, a pre-recorded interview that was done by Peter Boyle from Green Left. This is basically in response to the recent Greenland's uh, elections. And for those who don't know where um, um, what Greenland is, Greenland is uh, is basically a island sort of colony of near of Denmark, and so. There has been a recent kind of election there where a democratic sort of a socialist party won a majority in parliament. And so this interview is with, um, Niels Henrik Hoge from Friends of the Earth Denmark and, um, Suren, I'm trying to forget, Suren, um, Sodergaard, an MP from the Red Green Alliance in Denmark. So yeah. This is um, get, I'll pl- be playing this interview for the next 30 minutes, so hope you enjoy. Earlier this month, an eco-socialist party, Inuit Atakachigit, won a snap election in Greenland with 37% of the vote in what was described as a virtual referendum over a controversial proposed uranium and rare earth mining project by an Australian company, Greenland Minerals Limited. The election followed the collapse of the previous coalition government, which was about to give the mine the go-ahead. The proposed mine in Grenfell, in the south of Greenland, the largest island in the world, sought to exploit what is claimed to be the world's second largest deposit of rare earth oxides and the world's sixth largest deposit of uranium. Now, Greenland is an autonomous territory in the Kingdom of Denmark, but the Greenland government has control over natural resources on the island. I spoke with Niels Henrik Huge from Friends of the Earth Denmark about this development. Well, yes, uh, there are 31 uh, seats in the Greenlandic parliament uh, in Atsisatut, and uh, the winning uh, party, as you mentioned, Inuit Asakijit, uh, now has 12 of these uh, uh, 31 seats. So obviously they have to form a government coalition and it's most um, likely that they will uh, uh, get together uh, with one of the smaller parties that are also anti-uranium mining, uh, namely Parti Nalarak, uh, which uh, control uh, four seats. Uh, so they will... Uh, be in a position to have uh, a majority of uh, one seat, uh, which is uh, not much. Uh, a third uh, party, Atasut, might enter the coalition. Uh, uh, they have uh, two seats, so that would give, give them a, a little uh, a bigger margin, uh, but perhaps not uh, too much. All these uh, three parties uh, are against uranium mining in uh, general, and, and uh, uh, the the creative field mining uh, pro- project in uh, particular. Uh, this opposition by uh, Inuit Atakichit uh, has uh, lasted uh, at least since uh, 2013, uh, where the uh, now uh, side-lined uh, government party, uh, the former government, government party, Tjumut, uh, repealed the so-called uranium ban in Greenland uh, in order to uh, uh, in, in order to accommodate uh, Greenland's Minerals Limited, uh, this uh, Australian uh, mining company that owns uh, 
the Kriana uh, field project. At that time, uh, they uh, stated that they would not uh, proceed with the Kriana field mining project, uh, which is also a rare earth uh, mining project, if they were not allowed uh, to exploit the uranium. So uh, there was a conflict, and it has uh, lasted ever since. So is it um, how how big uh, an issue was this in this election campaign? A decision in the licensing process was imminent because there's an ongoing environmental impact assessment which is supposed to stop at June first, and and because there's because there's also there was at that time community election, and the Seumut party, uh, the, f- the former government party, uh, stand, uh, stood to lose a lot of seats in southern uh, Greenland, where almost 80% or more of the population are against uranium mining, because all the big uh, uranium uh, mining projects are located in so- so- southern uh, Greenland. So, so uh, suddenly they started to hesitate, because uh, uh, they, they uh, had the prospect of losing a lot of municipality uh, seats. Uh, so the, the other government party, Demokratit, uh, left uh, the co- coalition because they were uh, very fixed, uh, very set on uh, on uh, uh, providing Greenland's Minerals Limited uh, an exploitation uh, license. So uh, uh, Certainly, also there was a general election uh, at the same time at the municipality election. Uranium mining uh, was suddenly at the middle of this uh, general election uh, because it uh, it actually uh, caused uh, uh, the the split of the government uh, and 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 the the calling of this general uh, election. So uh, the, this election was actually in Greenland dubbed. Uh, the uranium election, and that was probably the determining factor uh, in this uh, not not surprising uh, 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 election win uh, for Inuit uh, at the uh, because it was expected uh, that had been polls uh, a month ago predicting exactly this result. Now, can you tell me a little bit about this uh, Inuit uh, Atakajit party because? It was earlier on in the government, at the beginning of uh, self-government or home rule for, for, for Greenland, and there was some criticism that while it was seen to be, um, you know, eco-socialist something party, that it um, it did implement a, a, a legislation that would um, make mining easier, and there was criticism from um, from uh, I suppose the left in Denmark about this. So how strongly committed is this party to um, the environmental issues? Well, I would uh, in which as a kid uh, is uh, like all the other uh, parties in Greenland. Ninety uh, percent of, of the population are, are in which uh, it's an in which uh, party. So it's. Uh, in, in that sense, it doesn't differ from any of the other uh, parties. Uh, it is special in, in one respect, in, in my opinion, 
uh, I would call it a classical uh, Green Party, uh, perhaps uh, like the Green Party in uh, Australia. It is uh, centre-left, but I, I wouldn't call it socialist uh, because you, <laughs> uh, there are no socialist parties in, in Greenland. Uh, uh, they have uh, a flat tax, for instance, uh, not pro- pro- progressive taxing. And uh, among the Nordic countries, except for Russia, perhaps, it's the most unequal, uh, totally unequal uh, uh, society uh, in, 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 in the Nordic uh, uh, countries. Uh, it, it, it also differs from the other parties, or at least the other major parties in the Greenlandic parliament in one respect. It's not a populist party. Uh, in, in, I would... Uh, I would assert that in Greenland, uh, the political division, uh, main division, is not uh, left or right, but it's populist versus non-populist. And it's actually uh, a party that, uh, uh, I mean, take take, uh, scientific facts uh, very seriously. Don't don't lie to the the electorate, uh, as uh, has been done uh, in Greenlandic politics, at least uh, 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 from 2013, where they uh, lifted this uranium uh, ban. I, I mean, uh, w- one of the big issues uh, since then and even before has been uh, the, 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 the assertion that uh, if you just have enough uh, large-scale mining and if you just ha- have uh, enough oil and gas extraction in, in Greenland, then you can be economic, uh, self-sufficient, and then you can uh, uh, be independent from from Denmark. Uh, but uh, that is actually not the, the case because uh, uh, scientific reports from uh, uh, Copenhagen University and Greenland University in, in Nook uh, has uh, long ago established that uh, that is not uh, possible. I mean, you have to have, uh, according to them. Uh, at least 24 concurrent uh, large-scale uh, mining uh, projects, and that is uh, uh, completely unrealistic. And uh, even if you have, have that, uh, when these uh, natural resources uh, run out, you will be in a position uh, like before, only worse. So so uh, uh, that is, in my opinion, how uh, Inuit Asakitit uh, differs from uh, at least the, the other major uh, government party. It's... Uh, is not populist, and it, it takes the politics and scientific effect very uh, uh, serious. What is uh, that party's uh, links with the grassroots uh, campaigners for environment, for instance? Is there, you know, are they involved with 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 this, or uh, are these? Um, is there any connection or influence, grassroots influence in the in the IA? Well. Uh, uh, Greenland has a population of less than 60,000, and that's uh, not much for such a, a big uh, uh, island and a, a big, uh, such a big uh, uh, country. So, so uh, as you might expect, there are not many NGOs uh, in in, in uh, Greenland, uh, but there is a cooperation uh, between the, the Danish, uh, the Greenlandic uh, green NGOs and, and green groups with uh, the Danish NGO uh, community. Uh, in Denmark, uh, and I could imagine in Greenland, uh, it's not... Uh, uh, I mean, uh, for, 
for principal uh, reasons, uh, green NGOs uh, do not cooperate closely with political parties. I mean, there's a line uh, yeah. there that mm. uh, should not be uh, crossed. However, uh, obviously, there's also a, an overlap uh, because uh, uh, many, uh, if not the most of the uh, of the members and, and the politicians in Inuit, as a kid, for instance, are also active in the green movements as private citizens. Uh, so so uh, there is uh, an informal cooperation, uh, obviously. And I, I would have to say that, uh, I mean, I've been in the, involved in this cooperation uh, from Denmark with Greenlandic NGOs for uh, give or take seven or, or eight years, uh, and and I have never uh, encountered uh, green activists from uh, political parties in Greenland uh, from other than Inuit activities. But they are very active, uh, also in in the grassroots uh, work, uh, f- uh, for sure. And uh, in my opinion, that is typical of a, a green party, and that uh, is what it is. Uh, it is what the Inuit activity is, in in my opinion. There must be a lot of pressure on any party arguing for independence or more autonomy or continuing autonomy for Greenland to to deal with the question of where how would you get to generate revenue, etc. Uh, what are the other alternatives to mining because it's um, that uh, are being discussed? in Greenland, for Greenland's future? Well, uh, for first, I, I think that one misunderstanding uh, should uh, uh, be, uh, be uh, gotten out of the way. Uh, Greenland is not a poor country. Actually, if you look at the uh, the average income in the European Union, uh, a citizen of Greenland is actually above its average. However, uh, in, in light of Greenland's ambition, and all the political parties have that ambition to be self-sufficient, uh, uh, then uh, this uh, current economy is not enough because it, to some degree it's uh, reliant upon the block grants from Denmark, uh, which amounts to, uh, uh, on the average, uh, 500 uh, million euros uh, per year. Uh, that would be in Australian dollars perhaps uh, uh, 700 millions, uh, I, 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 I could imagine. Yeah. Uh, mm. I mean, by, by Greenlandic standard, that's a lot, but not by Danish uh, standards, uh, I guess, because the population uh, is, is so small. So there is an internal pressure uh, to get other uh, sources of revenue. But the Greenlandic BNP is, uh, as I mentioned, not that low. So it would, it would be a question of... Uh, a more equal distribution of, of wealth and also uh, a question of uh, of obtaining more revenue from uh, the the fishing industry because uh, uh, I think it's 90% of, of uh, Greenland's export uh, that is uh, consists of uh, fishing uh, products but but the, the problem is that the, the quotas I mean the the the, the uh, what, what you are allowed to fish uh, is is uh, b- because uh, uh, because they want to prevent overfishing. Uh, it's, it's divided up into quotas, and, uh, 
a lot of these quotas are owned by uh, 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 fishing fleets that are not from Greenland, uh, and also the 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 the, the, sh- uh, the fishing ships uh, themselves. So so if uh, uh, if fishing, which is and will also be in the future the, the main uh, source of income, was organized a bit different. Uh, a lot of this pressure. Uh, in order to uh, have large-scale mining, uh, would p- probably uh, uh, disappear. And you also have to understand that the benefit. I mean, there are two, now two uh, large-scale uh, mining uh, projects uh, in Greenland that are uh, you could use the word mature. I mean, they are imminent, uh, and and those are owned by by Australian mining companies. Uh, that, uh, the, one, the one in you have uh, yeah. heard about, uh, obviously, but there's also another um, uh, uh, mining project, not not, not far uh, far from there, uh, just by very close by Greenlandic standards. Uh, actually, it's it's owned by Tenbris. Uh, Tenbris. Uh, the the owner is uh, uh, Greg Barnes, uh, I, I think, uh, and 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 it's also a rare earth. Uh, uh, Mining project, uh, but you also have uranium there. You actually have uranium because of, of the special composition of, of this ore in, in, in southern Greenland in, in all the rare earth uh, mining projects. Uh, and, and actually, currently, uh, there was uh, the latest uh, assessment was from February. There are now 90 uh, large scale uh, mining areas in Greenland, most of them in, in southern Greenland. And most of them are uh, open uh, pit, uh, potential open pit uh, um, um, mines, and you have them everywhere uh, where where Greenland can be inhabited uh, by people. Uh, in effect, where there's uh, no ice, so actually everywhere where uh, people can live, and you have bio, biodiversity. And in the future, because of global warming, the pros- prospect of, of farming. You have now mining areas uh, for large-scale uh, uh, mining projects, and that would be uh, prospecting areas, exploration areas, or in, in some few ca- cases, uh, yet uh, uh, exploitation areas. And in addition to that, you have uh, 50 uh, small-scale uh, areas also. So I would... Uh, I would say that the Cranefield project is only the top of the iceberg. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, there's now a pro-environment uh, government in uh, in Greenland, and they have ma- major challenges, in, uh, in my opinion, uh, in the future, because they have to deal with these problems. That was Niels Henrik Huge from Friends of the Earth, Denmark. Well, I next spoke to Soren Sondergaard, who is an MP in Denmark, with the Red-Green Alliance. The Arctic is becoming more and more a centre of global politics. Uh, And the reason for that is that the ice is uh, melting, which uh, leads to that you can can, uh, cut uh, a lot of hours from sailing over the North Pole instead of going uh, through the down under, through the Suez Canal. So you can, uh, I, you know, British companies, Chinese companies, and things like that, they can, uh, they can really uh, transport uh, things much faster. And of course, it raises a lot of uh, security concerns, and it raises a lot of uh, both security in terms of military 
security, but also in terms of uh, search and rescue operations and uh, the risk for uh, Titanic <laughs> experiences and things like that. So, uh, and and the, the second, and then of course mining, uh, it's uh, deep sea mining is possible when the ice is away. So, yeah. uh, and fishing rights, uh, it's a lot of uh, things there. Uh, uh, and then, of course, the other thing is that um, Iceland has a lot of uh, rare, I don't know the English word. Uh, rare earth? Minerals? Yeah, minerals. Min minerals. Rare earth, yeah. Rare, rare minerals. Um, yeah, it's rare earth is used a lot in, uh, uh, you know, like uh, new technologies, electronics, yes, exactly. military, exactly. yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, and therefore, there's this problem that... Um, that uh, The ones who control that, you know, uh, today China control a lot of the rare minerals. And uh, if, of course, it's very important who's going to control the rare minerals in Greenland. So therefore, uh, Greenland and the Arctis is in center of, you know, global politics. And of course, uh, Denmark is not an Arctic country. We're, we're very far away, but uh, we are in a, We have a kingdom, United Kingdom, with Greenland and Faroe Island, and Greenland is a part of, uh, of, of course, country in Arctic. So therefore, uh, I guess that uh, therefore Denmark is involved uh, uh, still. You know, we have uh, 175 members of the Danish Parliament, uh, and two uh, two more elected in Greenland, and two more elected in Faroe Islands. So altogether we are 179, but then they also have their local parliament and they have home rule on a lot of areas. For example, they had the home rule on minerals, um, but they don't have the home rule on foreign affairs politics. Yeah. So therefore the question in Kvanefjell was that at the same time you, um, Uh, opened up for uh, harvest uh, rare minerals, you also opened up for uranium. And therefore, there has been a lot of discussion, should Denmark be involved, things like that. And in the beginning, uh, there was, to be quite honest, a very stupid and uh, not very mature uh, uh, way of handling this problem in the in in the Greenland government, they said, you know, we they they didn't have any concern whether it was pollution or whether it was uranium or whatever. But then in the last years, uh, there has developed an environment movement in Greenland, green movement, and uh, you have also seen a strengthening of uh, this party in with Adagadagit. For a long time, it has been a plus 20% party, so it has not been a small party, and it has been in the government before. Uh, but uh, now it has developed even further, plus 30% party, so, and the biggest party. So, so this has led to that this election campaign was very hard and very different. Uh, and there was uh, two main questions. Uh, in the election campaign, you can say three, fishery was also a question, but then there was a question of uh, the social welfare and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the climate and the uh, environment and uh, the, especially the Kvanefjell. Uh, 
Inuit as a Kyrgyz is not against mining in Greenland. I mean, they are not, you know, uh, everything should be as it is. But they also want to develop a uh, um, farming industry, uh, sheep, uh, uh, corn, different uh, things, uh, agricultural things in the south of Greenland. Because of climate change, it is now possible. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a reason why it's called Greenland. There was a time way back, but now it started to get green again in the south of uh, Greenland. Yeah, and if not for that, that moment in, in, in time, uh, that the Nordic connection would not have existed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We all watch the Vikings program here, so we know about it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a huge welfare crisis. And then there's this crisis, not about mining in, as such, but uh, uh, unsustain, unsustainable mining and especially the uranium. Uh, and, uh, and Inuit at a Gadigit have been the leading force in uh, having a more balanced uh, approach to mining, a more sustainable approach to mining. And in the south of Greenland, where the Kvanefell mining is, I mean, they got more than 50% of the votes. Uh, so, I mean, uh, they really got a huge success. There's only four muni municipalities in Greenland, but in the southern part, they got more than 50%. So they are, they are really, uh, very, very strong on that. Uh, and, um, and, uh, this is an, of course, a confrontation with a part of the mining industry, uh, who have planned to, to build there. Uh, some of the mining industry can, can use other mines in other parts of Greenland on more remote areas, not, very close to farming areas, not very close to populate, populated areas as we have in the south of Greenland. But, uh, of course, now there is some kind of a confrontation. And I guess that the Australian mining company and the Chinese are very angry right now. So, Australian mining companies, so one of them uh, claimed to have a connection with the Donald Trump plan to buy Greenland. Probably correct. I mean, uh, <laughs> they were boasting about it in Bloomberg, apparently. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but if 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 people don't know anything about Greenland, yeah. of course, it's also quite easy to to make. I, I mean, he said joke, it's yeah. basically it's a big uh, real estate uh, uh, deal. Was well, what that's what Donald Trump was saying, and of course, you have a huge, huge land. And then you have 50,000 people, 50,000 people. It's very, very few people. Um, and, um, and of course, uh, a lot of things is very different as a part of Arctis, but also because it's a quite small community. You know? um, and in some ways, you can say the former political parties who were leading for many years after the Danish decolonization was clan parties, Atasud and Siumut. It, it was, you know, all the leaders had the same names and things like that. It was clans. But now it has uh, changed. And Inukit Adagit, just to IA, just to give a few words about them. Uh, they were formed, uh, I think, in the 70s. But 
they were formed as a clearly left party pro-independent. Uh, and they were formed by uh, Greenlandic youngsters who have been in Denmark and was a part of the Danish uh, left movement. And, you know, they were on some of the the universities with very huge left-wing um, presence. Uh, and many of them were also members of different left groups. Uh, so, so basically what they did was that they built a left alternative in Greenland. And then um, they started it as a movement. Inuit at a Gadigit means uh, Inuit people coming together. So they started to have meetings every year called in, uh, at a Gadigit coming wow. together. Uh, uh, and then from that, they formed the party, which then is called Inuit at a Gadigit. Uh, and, and they quite sudden became a substantial force in Greenland. Uh, and they have been in government one time, but, but now they, they are very big. Uh, we, we see them as our sister party in Greenland right. and Socialist People's Party uh, also see them as a sister party. Right. So you can see, say that um, in Denmark, they, uh, they, in Denmark, they would be the same as Socialist People's Party and our party. Uh, and especially on foreign affairs and things like that, they are more on the line on us uh, but the Red Green Alliance, but on questions on on industrial development and things like that, they are more moderate, you can say. And that's, I mean, it's also because a lot of things normally in our vocabularium, nationalization, blah, 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 whatever, I mean, in Greenland is totally different. Uh, uh, it's... Uh, because it's a, such a small community, uh, so they, they have—they really have to find their own way, uh, and they have to f- be able to develop without being uh, grabbed by the superpower. And that also what Inuit have understood. They understood that if there was a fast succession, uh, a fast um, independent from Denmark, they would not be independent. They would be instead uh, dependent on the United States or on Russia or on China. So uh, Inuit Adagit have changed. So their perspective is they have a perspective of independence and they want to build up in capacity to be independent, but they want to maintain links to Denmark until that moment. So now we have this uh, situation where they try to balance between uh, United States, Russia, China, Denmark, sometimes using them against Denmark, sometimes using Denmark against the others, you know, try to balance. Well, that was Soren Sondergaard from the Red-Green Alliance in Denmark. I tried to contact Inuit Atakachigit to get uh, direct comment from them, but... Uh, we have not been successful yet. Hopefully sometime in the near future. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, we were just playing a pre-recording of an interview that Peter Boyle did 
with um, two um, Denmark kind of activists or MPs or so on um, about the recent Greenland kind of elections. Um, so I'm just going to go pass it on to Zane now to introduce our next guest because we're sort of running a bit of time time, so we're just going right into the next interview. Yes, so uh, on the phone this morning, we have uh, Bronya Lipsky from Environmental Justice Australia to talk to us about AL- AGL, uh, the power company, who are possibly getting ready to cut and run and leave some pretty major clean-up projects behind. So welcome, Bronya. Good morning. All right. Um, so, Bronya... Uh, Environmental Justice Australia has just released a new report looking at um, AGL, um, formerly known as Australian Gaslight Company, uh, who owns a bunch of fossil fuel assets, including coal-fired power stations and uh, gas uh, projects. Um, Can you please give us a a bit of an overview? We'll get into the specifics as we talk more, but... uh, What's the general vibe? Of the demerger specifically? It looks, it looks like, I mean, basically what they've done is they have divided their um, retailing arm and their generating arm and they've rebranded them is the intention. And so the new retail and renewables arm is, has been branded UAGL uh, and their generating um, portfolios have been lumped together um, currently they're being called Prime Co. And so these um, generating assets is where their loss is and where their major rehabilitation obligations are situated. And there's certainly some concerns around the amount of money that uh, Prime Co or AGL generally has has, um, has put aside for those rehabilitation obligations. They've currently allocated about 340 something million dollars for four generating assets to rehabilitate and decommission those including the Bayswater and Liddell power stations the Camden gas project and the the Loyang power station and mine when we have a look at the costs associated with the rehabilitation of Hazelwood um, we know that those those amounts that have been put aside at the moment are nowhere near enough to rehabilitate and decommission one site, let alone four. Okay. So we'll get to Loyang A, which is probably uh, arguably perhaps the most expensive to, to rehabilitate. Um, but before we, we get to that, to give a bit of context, can you comment on some of the um, rehabilitation costs that, that might be associated or what, what is the actual, um, the key rehabilitation tasks at those two coal-fired power stations that are next door to each other in New South Wales, Bayswater and Liddell, and then also the Camden Coal Seam Gas Project because those three um, assets up in New South Wales uh, will, will all have different and large rehabilitation costs attached to them? Certainly. So you've got the decommissioning of the power site itself, so cleaning up um, and demolishing the actual infrastructure. A lot of these are full of asbestos, so there needs to be a lot of care taken around how to, how to dismantle and demolish uh, industrial sites that are full of asbestos. Um, you've got other infrastructure, including huge... Um, huge containers underground of oil and various other contaminants. You've got landfill sites that contain huge deposits of toxic coal ash. 
Um, of course, with Liddell, you've got Lake Liddell and the contamination issues associated with Lake Liddell, including a brain-eating amoeba <laughs> that didn't emerge until uh, AGL Macquarie became the owner of the power stations. Um, with Camden, I'm not as familiar. I'm more familiar with the coal projects, but you know, there's always contamination issues associated with groundwater and surface water with gas projects. Um, and just like huge, huge, these huge industrial facilities that have the the types of um, contaminants and, and toxic chemicals and uh, stockpiles of waste materials that you would imagine. And so cleaning up those and ensuring that they're comprehensively remediated to prevent ongoing contamination uh, and threats to human health is absolutely vital. And can you talk uh, specifically about ash dams associated with coal-fired power stations because probably a lot of listeners think of like having a little fire in their house or something and there's a bit of ash left over at the end you go and put it on the garden or something can you try and um, comment just on the vast scale of these ash dams and some of the environmental impacts on the on the groundwater and, and on the atmosphere sure as, you, as, you, as you've said, that's a great analogy. We've got some um, ash left over when we have a, have a fire. We can utilise that. Um, most folks think of air emissions and, and uh, climate emissions when we think of coal-fired power stations, but we don't often think about the byproduct of burning coal. So coal ash is a concentrated version of the contaminants that are released into the atmosphere. Um, there's a few different kinds of coal ash um, depending on the... the, the the process of which you're at with the with the burning of the coal, but basically it gets mixed with water and piped into enormous landfill sites that are adjacent to the power station sites. Because power stations need a lot of water to operate, um, these ash landfill sites are next to waterways, so usually groundwater and surface water, uh, and they're not engineered to prevent the... Um, those, those contaminants leaching into the groundwater and into the surface water. So because they're a concentrated version of the heavy metals that we that are emitted, uh, things like cadmium and selenium, uh, lead, mercury, and of course fine particle pollution, that's, that's having some pretty devastating impacts in certain places in Australia and there's not any land, uh, coal ash landfill site that's not associated with groundwater contamination of some kind. Um, it's having some huge impacts in places like Lake Macquarie where um, the, the levels of selenium and cadmium in certain crabs and fish are so high that the Office of Environment and Heritage is, is advising that people don't eat them or that they ensure that their consumption of these types of fish and crabs um, is quite limited because it does pose a, a threat to human health. Um, and so they're not regulated to best world's best practice standards. Our environment protection agencies are aware of what world's best practice is. They know that they need to be lined. They know that these ash dams need to be situated well away from waterways and from communities, uh, but they're not. And so the rehabilitation obligations um, that ought to be imposed um, is something that communities are fighting for throughout Australia so that they can have clean waterways so they can fish safely, they can swim safely, um, and that it's not potentially blowing over onto the communities and so they're not inhaling it. How do you how do you begin to clean something like that up? 
There's a, well, there's a few ways. So there's quite a movement to have it reuse, collage reused. It can be used in lightweight aggregates. It can be used in concrete. Um, so long as it's what they call encapsulated, so it's re, uh, heat treated and, and put into a concrete form or some kind of solid form and reused for things like road bases. Um, gen, starting an industry around collage reuse is certainly going to go some way to remove that collage out of the ground. Um, the other way is to just, one of the other ways is to move it into an appropriately engineered site well away from uh, where they're currently situated. Um, and unfortunately, like with any waste material, if you're not going to reuse it, it is actually going to just sit there in the environment. And so if it's going to sit there, if it's not going to be a reuse market, then you need to ensure that it's in an appropriately engineered landfill site so that it's not posing a risk to the environment or to human health. That sounds like a vast job. Like you'd have to almost build a dedicated railway to rail millions and millions of, of tons of this contaminated material to whatever that alternative location ends up being. Well, certainly, or you can you can construct it um, in the same area and not have those transport uh, risks associated with it. But certainly, in order to ensure that you've got an engine, like a properly situated site, you need to do some research into where that is. In places like Latrobe Valley, there's probably areas where you could do it, and certainly in the Hunter and on the Central Coast as well. Um, but building building recycling facilities or reuse facilities right next to the ash dumps is is, a, is an appropriate response as well. So, really, where um, we need to make sure that the power station operators and the governments are working together to ensure that there's a reuse market. Um, and that there's a political will to ensure that environmental justice is achieved in, in communities where these things are um, and that the environment is going to be comprehensively remediated. There's also a whole bunch of jobs associated with comprehensive remediation of ash dams, and we've seen that in places like the United States. So it's actually in everybody's better interest um, to to comprehensively remediate these things. Mm. Yeah, I think um, the Hunter Jobs Alliance up in uh, in Newcastle is really looking at that potential for alternative jobs in using it in, in manufacturing, um, as you say, to go into things like cement, concrete, building products, and and also relocating those ash dams and putting them in alternative, uh, safe, properly lined location. There's a lot of uh, jobs there. It's an interesting dynamic, but uh, as you've pointed out in your report, AGL obviously thinks that someone other than them should be uh, pretty much paying for all of this. Well, yeah, I mean, they have they have set aside some costs for rehabilitation and presumably when they rejig their, um, their finances, part of this merger, they will have allocated a certain amount of funds for rehabilitation. Um, but the, one of the... The concerns around a demerger is, you know, further demergers and the extent to which they might try to sell off uh, other assets. And then you have a potential situation like you've had in New South Wales where somebody like Trevor St. Baker can buy a power station for a million dollars and then operate those things into the ground without any kind of um, commitment to ensuring best practice maintenance and operation of these facilities. So it'll be interesting to see um, how much money does go towards rehabilitation noting that they've they probably don't have enough for one site let alone four um, and the degree to which they might try to start to sell off those assets for other purposes um, I know that AGL has is currently working with um, Kawasaki 
to establish a coal to hydrogen project in the Latrobe Valley, which would, would use the coal from the Luoyang mine. So they've already got their fingers in some of those pies already. <laughs> Brown hydrogen, just what the world needs. That's right, yeah. Um, now, another massive cost that will be associated with rehabilitating uh, Luoyang A, it shares a ash dam with Luoyang B, but also shares a massive coal mine, a massive brown coal mine with Luoyang B, which is about 200 metres deep and three kilometres long. And in 2014, there was this massive hazelwood mine fire, which points to the fact that when you finish running these coal-fired power stations, you can't just leave the coal mine uncovered. Well, how how is that going to impact on the um, on the costs of of decommissioning Luoyang A? And how again? What are the options for decommissioning a massive coal mine? That's such a great question because it's so complicated. Um, the cost that AGL has set aside at the moment for rehabilitation is based on the premise that it can have the cheapest rehabilitation obligations available to it. So they, there are rehabilitation obligations imposed on coal operators in Victoria. They are required to um, progressively rehabilitate, which means cap and, and cover the coal seams. Um, because, as you say, these are such large mines and the batters are quite steep. That's quite a complicated process. Basically, what they want to do is they want to cap it with clay and they want access to natural waterways to fill the pits with water. So in a, cli- a drying climate, that's quite a complicated proposition because it assumes that there's water available in the environment in the first place. Um, it's no one has to, no one has the best answers for this at the moment. There's a lot of people trying to turn their minds to it, but in terms of its impact, you've got to you've got to make sure that they're safe, but you've also got to make sure that the environment is, is remediated, and you've got to make sure that the community has an asset that it can utilise into the future. And certainly, our concerns are around the extent to which water is available and the appropriateness of water availability for filling pits in a drying climate considering that the environment needs it, farmers need it, we need it for cultural flows, we need it for a range of things. Um, and the contamination issues associated with um, with mine pits um, being filled with water. We don't want the offence to go around it and for people not to be able to use it. Um, and it's just... ONGI and, and the Hazelwood decommissioning process it definitely indicated that the costs associated with mine rehabilitation are enormous and they they are only estimates at the moment. And I note too that Luoyang is intending to operate until 2048 and so there's still a lot of mining to go in theory. Um, and so what the pit looks like um, in 2048 compared to now could be very different. And surely they should be turning their mind to what that comprehensive rehabilitation looks like up to that period of time and ensuring they've got the funds for it um, so that we're not left with a massive hole in the ground that's completely useless and very unsafe. Mm. I'd like to think that it's going to be shut a lot sooner than uh, 2048. Um, I I think 2028 is probably a better idea. Um, (laughs) You've mentioned ONGI, the, the entity formerly known as GDF Suez. Mm. What, what did they estimate as the clean-up costs for Hazelwood and how does that compare to what AGL have set aside for 
all of the three coal-fired power stations in Australia, plus that Camden gas field? Yeah, so in 2014, um, GDF Suez, as it then was, estimated in its annual report that the rehabilitation of the Hazelwood mine itself, so not the power station site with its landfills, just the mine, would be about $73 million. Um, after the Hazelwood mine fire, or during the Hazelwood mine fire inquiry, on G, or expert evidence said that it would cost somewhere between $264 million and $375 million. Just before the power station mine actually closed, ONGI estimated that the mine rehabilitation itself would cost um, 400 something million dollars and decommissioning the power station site would be another 300 and something million dollars. So uh, three quarters of a billion dollars in total, um, which is an eye-watering amount of money. Given that AGL currently has allocated about $340 million for four projects, it's definitely indicative that that amount of money is not going to be enough for one site, let alone the four of them, because these the decommissioning and the rehabilitation process is going to be hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for each individual site. And it does not appear that they have allocated the appropriate funds in order to achieve that rehabilitation, um, even to the standard that's currently set now, let alone a best practice comprehensive standard. All right. Well, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. But thank you very much for your ongoing uh, cutting-edge research that's a really useful tool for activists campaigning around coal and climate to use. How can people get their hands on this uh, report to check it out? Uh, you can jump onto our website, which is envirojustice.org.au, and follow the links um, around the coal pollution team and the, the good work that we've be, been doing on litigation and law reform in the coal pollution space. Wicked. All right. Thank you uh, very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Bronya Lipsky there from Environmental Justice Australia. Okay, well, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we just haven't been able to play announcement, um, sorry, listeners, for a bit of a packed kind of program we've had. Um, so I'm just going to go play a quick announcement, and then we'll do the Green Left kind of activist calendar, and then move on to our next interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left um, Radio. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio and now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, tonight um, there's going to be a webinar. The time has come, Freedom for Abdul Ochalon. And that is going to be happening on Friday, um, April 16th, 7pm. And if you check the Australians for Kurdistan Facebook page or website, you'll be able to get the details on how to register for the seminar. So we're going to be actually having a bit of a discussion at a few, um, at an interview shortly after this, um, talking about this upcoming seminar. 
Um, on Sun, on just getting to the next one, on Saturday, April the 17th, there is going to be an online forum, uh, a fair NDIS for all on 2 p.m. And you can get, I think you're pretty sure you can also get the details for that online forum by going on Facebook, Fairer NDIS for All. On Sunday, April the 18th, this Sunday, there's going to be a Myanmar fundraiser, Eat Food, Reject the Coup. Um, that's going to be happening at 2 p.m. Siteworks, um, Free Free, Saxon Street in Brunswick. On um, Sunday, April the 18th, um, there's going to be a protest, um, Queen Street Bridge Peter pedestrian and cycle solution at 3pm at the Alterna Skate Park, Queen Street, Alterna Meadows. And now the next event, just want to get this event quickly. There is going to be a, um, a live gig um, by just on, so I'm just getting the Facebook details here. And it's going to be the big um, folky farm fun day at Joe's Market Garden. And that's going to, a number of sort of progressive left-wing bands are going to be um, performing at. And that's just going to be on Sunday at the series Joe Market's Garden, um, 33 Edna Grove, Coburg. And that is happening from 1 to 5 p.m. And if you go on series Joe Market's Garden, you can get more of the kind of details on that. And just getting, sorry, just going into the next kind of events... And Everyone loves a bit of folk music at series. Yeah. <laughs> amongst the chooks and the plants. All right. Now, the next, I'm just finding the next event. And on Monday, April the 19th, um, there's going to be an online event. I'm pretty sure it's basically an event on the, on, the Royal, um, on the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody, featuring a kind of panel of speakers. And that's going to be happening on 7 p.m. Monday, April 19th. Then on Tuesday, April the 20th, um, there's going to be a planning meeting for protests at the Land Forces 21 Global Arms Fair in Brisbane, June 1st to the 3rd, 7.30pm at Friends of the Earth, 3112 Smith Street in Collingwood. And then on Wednesday, um, there's going to be a, a forum, Solidarity with Venezuela, and that's going to be happening either online or at the MUA office, 46 to 54 Island Street in West Melbourne. And then from Thursday, April the 22nd to Saturday, the May the 1st, there's going to be the Human Rights um, Art and Film Festival. And now just the last, I'm just going to skip ahead just to a few other sort of important events I just want to highlight, is there's going to be our Unions Welcome Refugees Freedom Celebration Barbecue at 6.30pm at the Shreds Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton. Um, on on Sunday, May the 2nd, there's going to be a Ma- the May Day Rally and March at 1.30pm at the Shreds Hall. Um, there's going to be the Student Walkout to End Refugee Detention, a niche um, called by RISE at 1pm at the State Library, Wednesday, May the 5th. And then there's going to be another Refugee Rally, Rally Keep Fighting for Refugee Rights, um, Refugees and Mandatory Detention Now, and they'll be happening at 2pm at the State Library, Saturday, May the 18th. Eighth, organised by um, Campaign Against um, fa- um, Racism and Fascism. And then, just skipping ahead, the last event is Sunday, May the 22nd. There's going to be a rally, Nakba, 73 years of Israeli colonisation must end at 2pm. Sunday, May 22 or 23? Oh, no, Saturday, May 22nd. Sorry, I ah. actually said, yep. Yeah. Saturday, May the 22nd, 2pm, 
um, at the State Library. There's also- the, the day before that, Friday, May 21, is the next uh, school climate strike. Oh yeah, happening across Australia. Yeah, I haven't got the we haven't got the details that for that the green that's just kind of but we'll hopefully get go into more detail for that next next time week. All right. Well, um, I'm just going to go play a quick few announcements and we'll go move in on to our next interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws? or stopped and questioned by police for being outside. Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR at 855am. And on the line, we have Peter Boyle from Rojava um, Sydney Solidarity, um, or Rojava Solidarity Sydney. And he's uh, he's been um, heavily involved in um, solidarity campaigning around the um, Kurdish struggle. And we have him on the program today to talk about um, the ongoing campaign to free Abdul Ocalan, who is the imprisoned leader of the Kurdish Workers Party PKK in, and has been imprisoned for years um, in um, the Turk, um, Turkish prison um, Turkish prisons. Um, so yeah, good morning, Peter. Good morning. So I guess to start to kind of start off, what can you tell us about? Give a bit of I guess an overview um, and the background to this campaign to free Abdulun Ocalan, and also maybe yeah, we'll talk a bit more in detail from there. Well, the campaign has been going on for many years because uh, Abdullah Öcalan was uh, abducted way back in 1999 when he was on the way to from Europe to um, visit South Africa at the invitation of Nelson Mandela, and he was abducted in an extraordinary uh, security or you know intelligence operation, uh, a combination of the Turkish intelligence the CIA and Mossad, they abducted him in um, Nairobi 
and um, and uh, took him back to, to Turkey, where he has been a prisoner ever since. And he, he's locked up in, on this uh, prison island called Imramli. Most of the time, he's been the only prisoner on this island, guarded by 1,000 Turkish troops. Since 2009, there have been uh, three other prisoners, I think, on the island. But most of the time, he's kept in isolation. He's not allowed, has not been allowed to have regular visits by his lawyers or, or, or his family. So, you know, he's, I mean, to sum it up, I mean, uh, Öcalan is seen uh, uh, by many Kurds, by most Kurds, as the sort of Nelson Mandela, their Nelson Mandela. And, and, and it's a good comparison, and it's one that, that we are using as a central part of this campaign. Now, the campaign is an international campaign. Uh, it, it, it is running for 12 months. It started last November, and Australia has been part of it. And, you know, despite the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been able to do quite a lot. Uh, quite an extraordinary range of activities from um, car convoys in Sydney, numerous demonstrations, and I think Melbourne, you know, as it as the, con- the pandemic conditions eased up, has had uh, a couple of actions. And in in Perth, they managed to get a uh, a sky sign, a plane to pull a free Ocalan sign across the across the sky over Perth beaches. Um, so there have been a variety of actions like this, and uh, as well as uh, collecting signatures for an international campaign for a statement calling for its freedom. And I think the numbers have got off to several million now internationally. And people in Australia can sign by going to the uh, Visiting the Australians for Kurdistan page website. Um, and there have been letters to the United Nations and a whole series of forums and discussions. And, and, and tonight we're having a very interesting one. Australia's hosting an interesting one with international guest speakers. We include Claire Baker from the British Trade Union, um, Unite the Union, and uh, as well as an, a former Icelandic uh, MP, Ögmundur um, uh, Jonasson, and uh, an and, uh, Australian left-wing author and, and academic, John Tully. Um, this, the point of this forum is to, is to share the story of how Unite Union, Unite the Union in, 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 uh, in the UK um, was uh, successful in getting the uh, UK Trade Union Congress to take on the campaign to free Ujilan. Uh, back at its um, its its annual annual uh, conference in 2019. I mean, you know, I like to think that maybe one day we could be nearly as successful in Australia and get the trade union movement here, the ACTU, to do the same. So that's one of the uh, one of the the, the key uh, the key, uh, if you like, objectives of this forum. And it's a free webinar. And you can uh, you can watch it. You can find it by on on YouTube. If you look for the uh, YouTube channel of Australians for Kurdistan, it will start at seven pm uh, tonight. And um, Dan, do you have a quick question you wanted to ask? Yeah. So the the Nelson Mandela, uh, you, you've mentioned Peter that um, there's this idea of 
mm, comparing Abdullah Ojalan to like the the Kurdish Nelson Mandela. Um, is that comparison overhyped? The the insinuation there would be that Kurdish people face a sort of um, apartheid. In, how would you compare the the situation for Kurdish people in terms of the second class citizen treatment that they face and the political repression that they face um, to what it was like in South Africa before apartheid was ended? Yeah, there definitely is you know systematic um, discrimination and oppression of the Kurdish people, um, most particularly in Turkey. But also uh, in 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 Iran, uh, in Syria, except you know now they've liberated most of the area they they, they are live, living in, and in Iraq, the worst is really in um, in in Turkey. Uh, they've uh, literally tried to wipe out the uh, the identity and the culture of the Kurdish people, banning the speaking of Kurdish for long periods of time even trying to prevent them from celebrating um, Kurdish New Year, uh, you know, which, which, uh, Mevraj, which was celebrated quite, quite recently. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, despite the fact that, that, that Kurdish people are a large section of the population, and, and you know, they've, they have, they have tried to become part of the political process by, by, if you like, any means necessary. Now, the uh, PKK, or the Kurdish Workers' Party, took up arms struggle, but has constantly made uh, overtures to to have peaceful solution uh, to the conflict. And um, ironically, um, Ojalan was, was abducted in the middle of a unilateral ceasefire by the PKK uh, with, with Turkey. They've also supported... Um, above-ground parties like the People's Democratic Party or HDP, which is the third biggest party in the Turkish parliament. And yet, right now, the Turkish authorities are trying to ban that party. They've systematically removed all the elected mayors and co-mayors, um, you know, uh, and uh, many of the, of the MPs, locked them up in jail, kicked them out of office, replaced them with appointees, by the ruling party, and so you could say this, that there is this element of, of, of um, you know, an apartheid-like situation that the Kurds suffer, particularly in Turkey. But the other comparison, I think, in a sense, politically, it's the most useful comparison. Uh, the freeing of Nelson Mandela actually allowed for, if you like, a political break. Uh, a, a negotiated solution, if you like, that ended the apartheid regime. And the argumentation here is that by freeing up, by freeing uh, Abdullah Öcalan, uh, a pathway opens up to a peaceful solution in this area. And the terms of this peaceful solution have been, you know, not only outlined in words, but in practice. And basically, the, the followers of Abdullah Öcalan have said, look at Rojava, look at what the Kurds have done in the north and the east of Syria. They, have, they are prepared to have uh, a society built on autonomy, on a form of grassroots democracy that is inclusive of different nationalities and different ethnicities. And they're saying, so, you know, 
we're not just saying, okay, free our leader and we'll have negotiations. We're saying, look, we're putting some some pretty pretty strong cards on the table. We can show in practice that there is the possibility for a, for, for a peaceful negotiation. They've even pulled back on on the demand to have a separate nation state. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, if, if if you can give us autonomy and you can give us grassroots democracy, uh, you know, and and uh, and and stop the war, um, you know, we, we we are prepared to work within the national, the existing national boundaries in the Middle East. Yeah. So, Peter, um, maybe the next kind of question to kind of resolve, um, to kind of um, conclude this interview, since we're running a bit um, low on time now, is um, I know this campaign has um, is becoming is has the seeds of becoming a very kind of serious sort of campaign with all the different Kurdish solidarity groups, including Australians for Kurdistan, uh, Rojava Solidarity Sydney, all kind of behind it. Um, for our listeners, how can people kind of get behind and kind of support this campaign? Obviously, there's going to be the webinar that's happening at 7 p.m. Um, tonight. Um, but what are the kind of like the other kind of actions and tasks that you know people can kind of take, and some of the initiatives that um, the campaign is going to be doing? Well, I think the most important thing is to, to go straight away to the Australians for Kurdistan website and, and sign on to the statement. That connects you to everyone else. Now, the reason I'm telling you to go there and not telling you to go to the Rojava Sydney Solidarity Facebook page or the Western Australian Group's Facebook page is that one of the terrible things we face is systematic um, discrimination on social media, particularly by Facebook. You know, I've been, I'm currently subject to massive restrictions on posting. I cannot post onto the Rojava Solidarity site simply because sometime back Facebook found that I posted an image of a demonstration where there was a tiny little flag with, with, with Erjalan's face in it. And that's enough to get you into Facebook jail. And the, the, they are the, uh, the the Rojava Sydney Solidarity site is on notice that it will be suspended or or closed down if it continues to do this. So we have to just we have to run a campaign to free Urjulan, but you know if we mention him or you know too too overtly or show dare show a photograph or a photograph where somebody is carrying a photograph or a, an image somewhere, uh, we're in Facebook jail. So. Go to the Australians for Kurdistan uh, uh, website because that's where you can get connected with the campaign, find out what's going on, sign the statement. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, um, Peter. Yeah. Um, I think it's um, this ongoing kind of campaign to free Abulung Ochlan is, I think, a very important one, especially in terms of supporting um, the Kurdish struggle. And and just mentioned the, the webinar tonight. Uh, go to the uh, YouTube channel of Australians for Kurdistan at 7 p.m. and you can join the webinar. Hmm. All right. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. Cheers, Peter. Bye. All right. Uh, Peter Boyle there from Rojava Solidarity Sydney. And as Peter says, due to extensive censorship, don't try and uh, keep up to date on events by, by using the Facebook page. Go to the Australians for Kurdistan website. Or for tonight at seven o'clock, go to the Australians for Kurdistan YouTube page to to watch that webinar. Mm. 
All right, so we're getting into the end of our program. I would like to thank all our listeners. And just Zane, is there any other quick things you want to kind of mention before? Oh, check out the Netflix doco Seaspiracy. I might talk about that next week. I'm not a vegan. Um, it was mainly vegans that put together this thing. There are perhaps some inaccuracies, but in general, it shines a light on the disgusting global seafood industry, and it's a good doco, well worth checking out. And um, I might give a, uh, one other plug I might give. If you happen to be a subscriber of Binge, um, I definitely recommend checking the five film series by Steve McQueen, who previously directed 12 Years a Slave and Shame and Hunger. Um, he's done a, a film series called Short Acts, which basically depicts the struggles of working class uh, people from the um, from the West Indies um, community um, in 1960s to 1970s London in West London. So yeah. short acts. Yes, I think it's short. Or it might be short acts or small acts. I I keep confusing the name. Actually, it might be small acts. Actually, um, but if you, if you search, um, yeah. Uh, just search Steve McQueen. It's basically his film series. Um, it's definitely worth watching. But I can talk about it in more detail next program. So, all right. Uh, that's um, probably it for our program. like to thank all our listeners again. And stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions. You are listening to... Well, actually, I don't think Beyond Zero Emissions is playing, actually. It seems to be we have an Earth Matters um, playing after this. So, yeah. You're listening to Green Left Radio. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.com. Dot org dot au or call one eight hundred six three four two zero six. For new subscribers, it is only ten dollars for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the Three CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into Three CR Community Radio eight five five digital on the AM dial and streaming live on three CR dot org dot au. Start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Oh, hey.